0: Great. I thought we'd begin this morning with a quick game of Trivial Pursuit. Uh, There's no prizes involved, I'm afraid. But what I want to do is I want to read the opening lines of several books, and you've got to guess which book it is and who the author is as well. So you're sitting comfortably, hands on the buzzers. Right. Here's the first one. Here is Edward Bear coming downstairs now. Bump, bump, bump on the back of his head behind Christopher Robin. Um, no, A.A. A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, close, but A.A. A. Milne, Sam got a point. Okay, next one. Apart from life, a strong constitution and abiding connection to the Tembu Royal House, the only thing my father bestowed upon me at birth was a name, Rolly Hla Hla. Yeah, Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela. Here's the next one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Jane yeah, Jane Austen, uh, Pride and Prejudice. Got lots of teachers here this morning. <laughs> How about this one? Well, Prince, so Genoa and Luca are now just family estates of the Bonapartes. I suspected as much. It's Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. (laughs) Now you've at least read the first sentence. (laughs) About this one. When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. No, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings. This one, Call Me Ishmael. Ah, Moby Dick. There we go. Herman Melville. There we go. Great. Here's the next one. These two very old people are the father and mother of Mr. Bucket. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Several primary school teachers here this morning. <laughs> okay, how about this one? The great fish moved silently through the night water, propelled by short sweeps of its crescent tail. Yeah, Draws. (laughs) That's right, Draws uh, by Peter Benchley. And how about this last one? If you want to find Cherry Tree Lane, all you have to do is ask the policeman at the crossroads. Yeah, Mary Poppins, P.L. Travers. Great, well done. So this morning, I want us to look at the opening words of the greatest story ever told. And if you have your Bibles with you, you might like to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read the first 17 verses. I'll put it up on the screen as well. The beginning of the greatest story ever told. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Abiud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Akim. Akim the father of Elihud. Elihud the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of Matan. Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And this is God's word. (laughs) That's quite a list of names. I wonder how many of you zoned out at some point and started thinking about your Christmas shopping list. This is Matthew's very first book. This is the greatest story in the world, the good news about God's Messiah. And yet, obviously, Matthew did not have a very good editor or publisher or something like that because anyone could have told him that this is not a good way to begin a book. I mean, even it was a dark and stormy night would have been a better beginning to the story. What is Matthew doing here? Well, perhaps it would be good if we thought back 2,000 years to the kind of culture into which Matthew is writing. It wasn't a culture that had television sets or radios or the internet or DVDs or CDs or iPods. It was an oral culture. At the end of the day, after supper, as you were sat around the fire, you would tell stories, and those stories would be passed on from generation to generation. And one of the favorite ways of telling stories would be to go all the way back through your family tree and list all the names of all the people and tell about those, the things that those people did. Uh, to a certain extent, we still do that today. I can tell you the story of how my Uncle Ian fell out of a chestnut tree onto the pavement side, not the grass side, and how my grandfather walked past him in the hospital because he couldn't recognize him. All the time, my Uncle Ian dropped a stone slab on his head while repairing his house. All the time, my Uncle Ian fell off his motorbike. My my Uncle Ian is (laughs) accident-prone. And I'm sure that you could tell me family stories as well. Now, sadly, we've lost some of this uh, through all the entertainment that we have. But in those days, it was the only entertainment that you had telling the family stories. And so the Jewish people loved genealogies. They could list all of their ancestors by name all the way back. And genealogies were important for another reason, too. Uh, In our society, we recommend ourselves to others by the things that we have done. And when we write up our CV, we list all of the places that we've studied, all the jobs that we've had, all the positions that we've held. But in those days, it was your genealogy, your family. That was your resume, your CV. It said who you were. It said something about your family and about your upbringing. Your genealogy was what recommended you to other people. And so Matthew begins this story with a description of Jesus' family. And you can imagine his first readers eagerly looking through the names to see who made it into the genealogy of the Messiah. They wanted to know something about the Messiah's family tree, who he was, his pedigree through his genealogy. And yet, you know, as I, th- I think that as they started to go through this list, their mouths must have opened wide, their jaws must have dropped, uh, as and they must have begun to frown because the kinds of names that are listed here would have sounded so strange to them. So let's imagine for a moment that we're sat around the campfire. It feels a little bit like we're sat around a campfire outside our tent. We've just had a great meal. It's a beautiful night, lovely and clear. We can see about a million stars, and it's time to tell stories. And someone has come along with the latest paperback copy of the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, this is the latest technology. Up until a few years ago, you had to tell the stories off by heart, and now they've gone and written it down. I mean, this is the ancient equivalent of Netflix. You can just imagine grandfather in the corner muttering to himself, you know, in my day, we had to remember the stories. But we take out Matthew's Gospel, we open it up to the very first page, and we read Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now take a wild guess. Genealogies in ancient Israel, do you think they listed the names of the men or the names of the women? (laughs) The names of the men, the fathers, that's how your family tree was listed here, Matthew inserts the name of a woman where no woman had any right to be. And not just any woman, but a woman called Tamar. Who was Tamar? Can you remember? Well, if you go to Genesis 38, there you will read the story of Tamar. I I grew up in a Baptist church, and every Sunday went along to Sunday school and heard all sorts of stories from the Old Testament, with the little flannel graph pictures and everything. I can assure you that not once did I hear the story of Tamar in Sunday school, even though it's right in the middle of the story of Joseph. Joseph. We've just read about the the three great patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph and another whose name was Judah. Judah went out and got himself a Canaanite wife, which wasn't really a good move. And he and his wife had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah found a Canaanite wife for his son Ur, and her name was Tamar, in other words, Judah's daughter-in-law. The Bible tells us that Ur was a wicked man, and so God put him to death. And so Judah then gave Tamar Ur's brother as her next husband, something that was customary in that culture. You married your dead brother's wife, and so it was very important that you checked up on your brother's dating habits. But Onan didn't want to give Tamar any children, and so God put him to death as well. Now Judah has already lost two sons to this daughter-in-law and he must have been started starting to get a little anxious. And so he tells Tamar to live as a widow in her father's house until Shelah, his youngest son, is old enough to marry her. And then he conveniently, accidentally, on purpose, forgets all about his promise. He has no intention of giving his youngest son to this woman And so one day, Tamar hears that her father-in-law is passing nearby to her house. And so in order to preserve her family line, in order to have children who will be able to take care of her, Tamar dresses up as a prostitute, puts a veil over her face, stands on the street corner where she knows Judah will be passing by, and sure enough, Judah passes by and he asks for the price of a one-night stand. Tamar tricks her own father-in-law into sleeping with her. This was an act of incest, an act condemned everywhere else in the Bible. And you can read the rest of the story for yourself in Genesis 38. But Tamar falls pregnant and gives birth to twins, Perez and Zera. The name Perez and Zerah, or rather the same Perez and Zera. And Judah that we find in verse three. This is not the greatest family story in the world, probably not one that you would talk around around the campfire. This would have been a part of the family history that would have been hushed up, never referred to. You can imagine Mrs. Matthew looking over Matthew's shoulder as he's writing and saying, for goodness sake, Matthew, if you're going to include the name of a woman, at least make it someone nice like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel. But Matthew says, no, I think I'm going to keep this one in. Let's read on, verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, who was Rahab? Well, at least Rahab makes it into Sunday school stories. Uh, Well, her name does, not necessarily her occupation. Uh, In Sunday school, we were told that she was an innkeeper. Uh, She was probably a prostitute. (laughs) That's the, the, the word that is used. Remember that Joshua and the people of Israel are wanting to destroy the city of Jericho. And so they send two spies in to check the land. And Rahab is the one who hides them. She believes that God is with Israel. She believes that God is going to give their land into the hands of the Israelites. She trusts in God. And so she hides these Israelite spies. And so in return, she and her family are saved, even though the rest of the city is destroyed. And it's amazing I know not only does she have a disreputable occupation, but she's part of a foreign nation, a foreigner, and yet she forms part of the genealogy of the Messiah. Let's read on in verse five. Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab; Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Well, at last, at least we're dealing with someone who's got a slightly better reputation. We all know Ruth. She has an entire book of the Bible devoted to her. She's someone who lived during the time of the judges, and she's an example of someone who's faithful to her mother-in-law first, and then even faithful to God. She decides to take on the God of Israel After her husband dies, Ruth decides to stick with Naomi. She famously says to her, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. But remember that Ruth is a foreigner. She's a Moabite. There's an extremely sordid story in Genesis chapter 19 about the origin of the Moabites. The nation was born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. His daughter gets him drunk and sleeps with him. That's where the Moabites came from. They were a nation who was uh, traditionally opposed to the Israelites and led the Israelites into idolatry. So much so that the law said this in Deuteronomy chapter 23 about the Moabites. No Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. Ruth is a Moabite, and yet Matthew says, I think I'm going to include her name here. That means, of course, that Jesus had Moabite blood in his veins. Let's read on in verse 5. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Well, about time. Here's someone worth having in your genealogy. Royalty. And yet Matthew continues in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So interesting how Matthew phrases that, isn't it? He doesn't say whose mother was Bathsheba, he says whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He deliberately draws attention to this sordid part of David's story. For those of you who are not familiar with the story, we find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. One night, King David, uh, who is a married man, sees a beautiful woman taking a bath on her rooftop from the palace roof. David sends for her, and he sleeps with her. Her husband, Uriah, is one of David's generals away on the battlefield fighting David's enemies. And Bathsheba falls pregnant, and she sends a message to David telling him this. And so David brings Uriah back from the battlefield and tells him or asks him how the battle is going and then says to him, why don't you go home and relax and enjoy yourself? But Uriah refuses to go home and enjoy the luxuries that other fighting men can't have. And so he sleeps outside the palace. Next night, David gets Uriah drunk and tries to send him home again. But as one writer points out, Uriah drunk is more righteous than David sober. He doesn't go home. And so David sends Uriah back to the battlefield with his own death warrant in his hand. It's a letter to his commanding officer, telling the officer to engage the enemy and then leave Uriah alone on the battlefield to die, which he does. And after the funeral, David takes Uriah's wife for himself. So interesting that in First Kings chapter 15, we have a summary of David's life. The writer says, "David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and did not fail to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite." Matthew doesn't focus in on all that David did right. He focuses in on this one exception, except in the case of Uriah. So sat around the campfire as good Jewish people, we would have been thinking, Matthew, what on earth are you doing? You're putting in all kinds of names here that you don't even need to put in. These are the kinds of names that should be hidden away somewhere in a bottom drawer. Woman, pagan, scandal. What, what are you doing You'll be relieved to know that we're not going to go through all the, the rest of the names. It would be a fascinating study. Uh, for instance, we have the name of Manasseh in verse 10. Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings that Israel had ever had. Just listen to what the book of Kings says about him. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. But interestingly, we read how at the very end of his life, Manasseh turns back to God, Listen to what the book of Chronicles tells us. The king of Assyria took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. It's one of the most dramatic conversion stories in the Bible. And there are other men that we could look at too. Even the so-called heroes of the faith, men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they weren't perfect specimens. They served God on a sort of part-time basis. So what is Matthew trying to do in writing this long list of names down for us? I think there are at least three things. The first word that comes to mind when I study this passage is the word condescension. That's an old English word that's slightly lost its meaning in our world. We use it to mean that someone is being arrogant or disdainful, but its older meaning has to do with stooping down to our level. In other words, humility. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of watching a high-powered businessman interact with his grandchildren. You know, here you've got this man in the smart suit and tie coming home and being perfectly happy to have grubby fingers all over him, stooping down to their level to tie a shoelace or to wipe a snotty nose. And That's the picture that I have here. God's great love for us, that he would stoop down that he would identify with us. A love that would allow him to have an ancestry like this. A love that took him down, way down, until he became the size of an ovum, growing as a fetus, being born through the womb of a teenager onto the floor of a stable. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus because he couldn't stand to leave us in our sin and shame that would lead us to eternal death. He stooped down, way down, to come and save us. Remember I said that genealogies in the ancient world acted as our modern-day CVs. When King Herod, the same King Herod we read about in the Christmas story, when he ascended the throne, he ordered that his family records be destroyed because he didn't want anyone peering into his past. But by contrast, the writer to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. The second word that comes to mind is the word sovereignty. And here we can see how down through the ages God was using a people and using events so that eventually his son would be born into the world. And God's sovereignty even extends to evil and sinful events. Manasseh forms part of the story of God bringing his son into the world. It's not that God sends evil, but that he is so in control of it that he is able to take the sin and the failure and the evil that are recorded in this genealogy and use them to bring about his plan of salvation for the world. God is a little bit like a judo player who uses his opponent's own strength to defeat him. God is able to take the worst of events and turn them around for good, even as Pete shared this morning. That's the message of the cross, that the most evil event in all of human history, man taking the opportunity to nail God to a cross and get rid of him completely, that event is used by God to bring about the salvation of the world. And the same is true in our own lives. That God does indeed work all things together for the good of those who love him. If we're faithful, if we're still following after him. It does sometimes take time. Remember God's promise to Abraham, through you all nations of the world will be blessed. It took 14 generations for that to begin to take place. Abraham didn't see that. It took another 14 generations and then a third 14 generations. Abraham never saw that promise fulfilled. And in our own lives, we might not see God working all things together for the good. But we do know that it is true by faith that he is sovereignly in control of our lives no matter what we might be going through this morning. And then the third word that comes to mind when I read all this long list of names is the word grace. One of my favorite Bible verses is Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And this passage illustrates that. That there is nobody who is beyond the grace of God. There is nobody who God will turn around to and say, Too late, you had your chance and you blew it. In his book, Hidden Christmas, Timothy Keller puts it this way Here in Matthew chapter 1, you have moral outsiders, adulterers, adulteresses, incestuous relationships, prostitutes. Indeed, we are reminded that even the prominent male ancestors, Judah and David, were moral failures. You also have cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, and gender outsiders. The law of Moses excluded these people from the presence of God, and yet they are all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus. What does it mean? First, it shows us that people who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus' family. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter whether you've killed people. If you repent and believe in him, the grace of Jesus Christ can cover your sin and unite you with him. In ancient times, there was a concept of ceremonial uncleanness. If you wanted to stay holy or respectable or good, you had to avoid contact with the unholy. The unholiness was considered to be contagious, as it were, and so you had to stay separate. But Jesus turns that around. His holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. Rather, his holiness infects us by our contact with him. Come to him, regardless of who you are and what you've done, no matter how morally stained you are, and he can make you as pure as snow. All we would have to do this morning is say, Yes to Jesus names are funny things aren't they my bank knows me as Reverend A.M. Parker Uh, the South African Revenue Service knows me as 264487 (laughs) Uh, to most people I'm simply Andrew, to my kids I'm dad, to my wife I'm, no I don't think I'll tell you that The first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew aren't just a long list of names. Each name represents a life, a real person, someone who existed. And from these names we learn, among other things, that God is a God who humbly comes down to have a relationship with us. That his sovereign plan came to being the first time and will come to fruition again in the history of the world, of the universe, and in our own personal histories too. And that we have a God of great grace who calls us to draw near to him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the greatest story ever told. And that even in the most unusual part, we learn so much about you. Father, we thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go into another week that's going to be filled with so much stuff and planning and things to do and things to get ready, we pray that as we began this service, we would take time just to sit quietly in your presence, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face and allow the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. Our living Lord Jesus. Amen.